I thought you have mood lighting. I have mood lighting? You're very dark. I don't know what to tell you. I guess I'm just going to be dark. <laughs> if you're comfortable with it, I am. I don't care. <laughs> He's taking his pants off now. <laughs> I have a buckle that was stabbing me. I'm moving it. But thanks for the play by play. <laughs> it's dark. I'm taking my pants off. That's it. Okay. Sarah, let's light this up. Okay. All right. <clears throat> Welcome to episode 70 of Probably Polly, the podcast where we question everything, even our names. <laughs> just, just the podcast thing. <laughs> <laughs> I do know what my name is, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> you have to keep all of this, Michael. This is the new the intro for this episode. Attempts at the new intro. Alright, let's go. Let's go. We're a little rusty. <laughs> so terrible. Okay, I'm gonna cover your faces. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Welcome to episode 70 of Probably Polly, the podcast where we question everything, even our name. I am Sarah Lucas. I'm Mandy Conant. And I am Michael Haig. Today's topic is... Navigating social situations while awkward. Yeah, while being socially awkward. I was reading it for so long because it says how to navigate poly or non-monogamous settings while you're a little socially awkward or uncomfortable in social settings. And I was like, is that is that different than navigating other social settings? No. No. What do you even mean? by socially awkward as opposed to what standard? Well, uh, I, I hadn't really thought about it as opposed to a, a particular uh, standard. My thought um, when I thought about this topic as far as things I wish there was literature out there in the poly community about how, like, what to what to do in, in, in X setting or whatever is that I feel socially awkward and uncomfortable in many poly settings and it's, there's something about the nature of the settings that makes me uncomfortable. And it, as I was thinking over it, and I think it's just because as a regularly socially awkward person, there's a whole lot of lack of structure. The poly settings that I've been in have typically been a let's get together and have drinks, coffee, whatever, and mingle. And as someone who's like socially awkward, I don't know how to meet poly people that way. You know what I'm saying? That is a common and boring thing that you see in a lot of polyamorous communities and non-monogamous communities, but especially polyamorous communities. I will agree that is also the go-to standard when I started going to polyamorous communities in my area was meet for coffee, meet for drinks, meet at a restaurant for a meal, which was super weird because then you were all seated at a table and you only talked to the three people that were in proximity to you. Mm -hmm. And there was like 30 people there, but you could only talk to three of them on this ridiculous long table that made no sense. Yeah. So as someone who is socially awkward, it's just I have a hard time engaging with my community because all of these settings, it's like they work for people who are the kind of people who can go up and talk to anyone. And I'm not exactly that kind of person. I don't know. I don't feel comfortable in those kind of settings. And so I feel like they aren't great for people like me who are just a little uncomfortable in open settings. Like, am I making sense? I feel like I'm not making that much sense. No, no, I think you are. It, it actually made me think of male presenting people at these things and how hard it must be for male presenting people to approach people and not come off as weird or creepy or, you know, that's what I think of first off. Mm -hmm. Just because being female presenting, you'll get approached more. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that it's as hard being female presenting in these social situations as it is being male presenting. And I'm not one to ever say that it's harder to be, to be male presenting. <laughs> But I think in this kind of situation, I, I, I sympathize with 
with them. Mm-hmm. I think for all practical purposes, I have actually never been to an event in the community where I wasn't there as some sort of speaker. <laughs> I went to two events at two sort of different communities that I was trying to find at the very beginning of trying to understand all this. And then I spent four years and two degrees processing it. And then people from the community were actually in classes I was teaching. And I was talking about being polyamorous. And they said, oh, can you come speak on the ethics of that to this polyamorous group? And that's huh. sort of what I've done ever since as far as actually engaging the community. Interesting. I'm usually there in some type of networking capacity. Mm-hmm. But it's not always known that I'm there in a network capacity. Networking capacity. Networking for for what what purpose? What is your goal in networking in those spaces? For either conferences or um, they're promoting something or it's it's still working. Like Michael said, it's still I'm still there in some type of like almost a professional setting. Yeah, almost like a, yeah. My major coping mechanism as a person that I do think doesn't really know how to engage from a blank page is to have a function. If it's an option, I would say consider volunteering Mm -hmm. through your local group so that you're there with a function is a really great starting place because that is how I always process these sorts of events is I need to have a sense of understanding my function and my place in them as opposed to just being there. Mm -hmm. And I also think it's a good thing because I think being involved in your local communities is one of the most important community building things. And I think participating in community is a big deal for building better, stronger, healthier, more involved communities. And what really happens in a lot of communities, in my experience, is that there ends up being a core group of maybe 10 actively involved people in the center that sort of run everything. And usually they don't want to and they're burnt out, A, because they're having to do everything to keep the community running. And so having more people volunteer would be helpful in that capacity, and it would give more variety to what that community looks like. And then B, because they're so burnt out, a lot of times they really can't do more than just say, well, let's do a coffee social once a month because they're trying to keep the forum the community on is running. They're trying to keep it moderated. They might be trying to deal with harms issues that are burning them out. They might be trying to deal with charity work that the group has intentions of doing but doesn't necessarily have enough engagement for. I mean, even if you just hosted the coffee hour, a coffee hour, if that's what everyone's doing, you know, when they get there, you can be like, hey, it's good to see you. Like, everybody's over in that corner. How are you doing? You know, and it just gives you this automatic place to be and it's sort of something to do that makes it clear what you're supposed to be doing and gives you a reason to engage with everybody but in a healthy positive way yeah that's what i was gonna say was you get to engage with everybody then you'll get FaceTime with more people like you said in a, in a healthy positive non-threatening way that's really good okay i always like when i come up with an answer to anything really and they're mandy or sarah's like oh yeah that's that's gonna work <laughs> i feel really good about that makes me feel pretty good about my day right on <laughs> Interesting. I hadn't thought, as you were going through uh, your answer there, you, you came to a part two, which is that the, the leaders are probably burnt out, which is possibly why they aren't creating something that's a, a little more elaborate, I, I would say, than a coffee time or a drinks hour mm-hmm. or something like that. Because my thought as you were going through part one of your answer was, well, do you feel that maybe leadership should be more creative or should take on a more inclusive role and they should think about people who are more socially uncomfortable or whatever. And then you came to part two and I was like, oh, okay, maybe that's, maybe I'm looking at this in the wrong way. So I appreciated that, that you went into that part two. Well, and then if you did do that, you know, if you got involved with the group and said, hey, I was wondering, what if we did a short local hike? 
instead of coffee or whatever it is that you wanted to see, I think you'd feel less awkward if it was in an area that is your interest. Mm -hmm. So for example, I know that in my local group, there's a group of people that I guess really like hiking. The group that we run has a structure built in where without even asking, community members can just make events Mm. because we wanted to encourage more community members to make the kind of events they wanted to see. But in every community I've ever been in, even the more restrictive ones, because in my experience, I've never been in a non-monogamous community where the leaders were not burnt out. If someone went to them and said, I want to run, host an event, here's what it would look like. At worst, they'll co-sponsor it. They'll be like, yeah, we'll put this person here with you who's a leadership member to be the in-charge person. But yeah, we'll do the event and you just do all the work. Sure. Okay. Because they're always looking for that and they want that community engagement and they don't want to have to do it because they have 110 things to do already. And then you could just choose something that you like, like they chose hiking and they just do a hike three or four times a year, like invite people. And that's a thing that they're already into. So you get there and they say, you know, do you go hiking often? Do you do backpacking? Do you do backcountry campouts? Do you do base camping? And so it's less awkward because it's already in their interest group. So you can come up with whatever your interest is and then hold the event that you want to see. And again, it's healthy for the community because it's a good and different an interesting event and then it's helpful for you because you've created a space where you're going to be super comfortable because you're going to be able to talk about the things that are interesting to you and because you have a specific role to play. Yeah, and whether that be like Michael said like camping or maybe a dog park day or like a crafting thing, you know, like everybody gets together and does crocheting or you know, whatever craft is Mm -hmm. the happening thing right now. sounded super fucking old just now. You know, what... (laughs) that crafting is great <laughs> something you know whatever is in as far as crafting well it can be generic craft day too. bring whatever craft you want so you got people on the whole gamut someone over there is knitting and someone on the other side is like hot gluing a mask for a ren fair you know who knows or a book club or something like that you could start a book club for people you know non-monogamous readers and you know that would be killer just something that's maybe more in tune to your interest. I don't think we have a book club right this minute, but we consistently from time to time have a new book club, go through the book and then do a different one. Yeah. The pandemic's disrupted a lot of our routine stuff, but we did used to have a very consistent book club. Hmm. I think that would be really cool. I just like, this is this is really interesting. I don't know why. It never crossed my mind to have a non-monogamous book club of non-monogamy books. That'd be so cool. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be so fun. I see a lot of like non-monogamous parent groups as a thing too. You see that whole bunch. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. I mean, we always want our kids to go somewhere and feel normal and not be worried that they're going to mm-hmm. get picked on and not be worried about what they're going to say, like have to ask, you know, answer awkward questions. And I have very rarely met any non-monogamous parent whose kids are within five or six years of my kid's age mm-hmm. or even more often, but I've never met one within five or six years that are not like, yeah, we should get the kids together if you're interested because it's just the kids need peer support. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good for everybody. And it's good for it to be parents and have that, that village support from other parents that are non-monogamous. And for sure, a lot of times the young, uncoupled, no kids, people get more of the events because that those are the exciting events. Yeah. Well, and knowing that it's going to be kid-friendly too, because as awesome as sex positivity is because of how weird and litigious and how many people ha- are divorcees or are facing questions about which, you know, where their kids can be, you can't just take a kid to a sex-positive event if you don't have rock-solid, no-holds-barred custody. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) Right. So knowing for sure the event will be parent safe, we have a kid space, kids are going to be doing stuff, it'll be kid safe, kind of family safe events is also a pretty awesome thing to throw Mm -hmm. in my experience. Again, I mean, I don't know how popular you want it to be. I personally would get overwhelmed running an event where like 50 people came. So I wouldn't hate it if three groups of parents with kids came to an event. I'd be be like, cool, we have nine kids to play and... Mm. (laughs) 
three or four groups of parents. Yeah. Good. Set. <laughs> and you can even hold those at like a park. We used mm-hmm. to do uh, like poly picnics in the park that were kid friendly and very family oriented. How would you um, suggest taking those into like a pandemic base? Would you just like have them virtually and just obviously you can't do like a kid friendly picnic. What would you put in place of that? in a, like, if that was something, Mandy, that you hosted regularly and you had to cancel it because of the pandemic, what would you replace it with? I have no idea. Neither <laughs> do I. <laughs> I have an idea. Go for okay, it. Okay, what's your idea, Michael? Well, I would host a parent-only sort of event where the parents would bring their kids' interests and play some sort of kids' interest-matching game. And then afterwards, you'd set up a play date to see if the kids liked each other. Because we're doing, like, single kid play dates. You come, you mask, you go to a park, you play with one kid at a park, mask. Mm. That's reasonably safe. Okay. We didn't do the kids thing for a year, and that's a year of no friends. Yeah. Yeah, God. And that is the maximum amount of time that a child can have no friends in my mind before the risk of damage from the pandemic is actually less than the risk of social damage from being socially isolated. So obviously, we're still being safe. Like I said, we're only seeing one kid at a time, but I mean... So you can contact trace and everything's a lot easier to keep up with. Yeah. You know, so you can do a parent mixer and make sure the parents are all wearing masks and outside and socially distance and all the things that's easy to get parents to do and the mixer can be about like who thinks their kids would play well together who's in the same age group which kids have the same likes which parents wouldn't hate hanging out while their kids were playing on the playground and then try a play date and if the kids don't like it try a different play date you could even do the parent mixer on zoom you could even do that virtual that's true you could do the parent mixer virtual as well that wouldn't be as problematic for parents as it is for kids and yeah, you could pair off and then you could even have like a follow-up to the parent mixer where the parents do another zoom meeting or mixer and they talk about did it go well for their kid what did and didn't work yeah what kind of play date did they use how safe did they feel and sort of share ideas and workshop the way to do it again and then switch people around and try again and try and build children alliances through the the group that way yeah it does seem clear now that this is going to be an, an endemic it appears that this is going to be something we will be living with for the rest of our lives yeah. and that realistically is going to be like a worse version of the flu for a while and then we're going to reach a point from just exposure and vaccinations where it's going to basically just be like the flu is probably what's going to happen assuming it doesn't mutate into something far more lethal and become horrific but assuming that doesn't happen then you know we're, we're looking at it moving towards being endemic and so what that means is that what you're really doing at this point is you're doing comparative risk analysis pro risk and reward profiles yeah yeah the risk is unfortunately very much still there to send my child to school but if I don't send my child to school the damage is guaranteed mm-hmm, right and so i have to look at how much he loses by not going to school versus how much i risk by sending him to school make that comparison and then do my best to make the best choice i can out of that right i think the thing that's always been really interesting is when we work together to do stuff we can accomplish so much so easily you know if everybody had just been like we want to stop the pandemic at the beginning let's work together to stop the pandemic and masked really well. I mean, honestly, if they just masked exceptionally well and then all taken the vaccine when it came out and if nothing other than those two things had happened, we would be in an incredibly better place than we are right now. Very different. And if we had done lockdowns and everyone just did them well and all the states weren't bickering and all the individual groups weren't bickering and people were actually working together. And I think that ties in well to sort of what I was saying earlier, which is we really have a system and I don't know why. Um, well, I do know some of why it's diffusion of responsibility 
responsibility. Have I talked a lot about diffusion of responsibility before? It's one of my favorite topics. I recognize the phrase. I don't remember what it is. Yeah. It's been a minute since we've talked about it for sure. So diffusion of responsibility is the issue where with humans, when it's not clear whose fault things are, they just nobody really takes responsibility. And it's a combination both of not wanting to take responsibility and not having to, and also mm. trying to fit in. The go-to study for diffusion of responsibility is a study that where they they call people in and in the in the control group the person comes in alone the person who tells them about what's happening says your study is to work on this computer hit these keys when it comes up and i'll be in the next room if you need me i'm changing a light bulb and they go in the next room and then they like kick over a stool and like chuck a heavy weight and then they don't make any more noise and most people you know a very high percentage of people i forget the exact number but it's in like the 80 90 range will go running into the next room to check on that person to make sure that they didn't hurt themselves that's the control group so then in the main study group there's a second person in the room who's a confidant so there's a real study participant and a fake study participant who come in together the person says you two you're both the study participants sit at these computers answer these questions i'm gonna go in the next room and change a light bulb and they go in the next room and they do the same thing and the confidant doesn't flinch at all they just keep working on the assignment without breaking at all and in the vast majority of cases it's like 75 80 percent the people who are in that scenario do not check on the person in the next room they look around they start to get up they realize the other person isn't doing anything they go back to taking their test it's funny because i heard that study when i was in college and i have no idea what it would have been like before i heard that study but after i heard that study i resolved that i would always be the person who did the thing so you know there's similar issues where like people driving down the expressway will see an object in the road and think well someone surely called 311 to have the object removed and then like no one will call yeah you know if somebody called then it would be removed but everyone thinks somebody else did so nobody does but you don't know because you you didn't report it so you don't actually know if it's there right mm-hmm. you know and that relates to what i was saying with sarah with the what do you do if your area is socially awkward well if everybody chipped in to help if everybody who was in a poly community just did two hours of service to the community a year you would have an amazingly vibrant community yeah it's not even a huge amount of effort that you'd have to put in if everybody did it but the problem is that you end up with people not doing it and then you end up with four five six seven ten fifteen depending on the size of your community core people who are doing 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 100, 1,000 hours of work during the year. And then when you look at the fact that the community is actually five, six, seven hundred people mm-hmm. and you go, man, if everybody did two, three, four, five hours of work, that'd be it. Right. We'd have everything that we needed and nobody would be burnt out. Think about the amount of diversity you'd have. Think about the amount of ideas that you'd have. Think about the different perspectives you'd have, the different events mm-hmm. you'd have. Instead of what people instead do is they say, why are all our events coffee events? Right. I don't want to call that out in a negative way because I've definitely seen groups like shame their mm. the people for saying stuff like that where they say like you said why is it all coffee events well then you do the event mm. because this is the best we can do I'm, I'm actually saying they're in pain that's a protest gesture when they turn the blame around I'm not blaming anybody I'm just saying mm-hmm. the events are making you feel awkward the events are making you feel awkward because they're not mm-hmm. built for you uh, that's it right on the nose yeah exactly yeah you know you don't even have to build the event by yourself you could ask your you know whatever your local poly group is can I post a message board that says I'm interested in doing a different kind of event here at three or four events I'm interested in. I need at least two people to help me run them if I'm going to do them. Hmm. Is anyone else looking for events like this? Yeah. Don't overload yourself either. Don't don't become the next burnt out volunteer. Ask for help at the beginning to make the community say, this is what I want to do. If you're interested, I just need one or two people to work with me and we can do it. I know that there's people out there that want to do parent events. I know there's someone out there that wants to do hiking events, whatever it is. And, you know, I think you could find it, especially because the diffusion of responsibility principle is bizarre. It works both ways. Another study that's just the weirdest study, I don't remember what it's called, I should look it up, but is a study where they had 
people in a waiting room. I don't know how much you know about studies, but most studies lie to you. They tell you you're here for one thing, but you're actually being studied for something else because if they tell you the study, it affects the results. Mm -hmm. So like in that first study, they told the people they were there to mess around on the computer, but in fact, they were there to see if they would respond to someone falling and needing help. Right. And then in this study, they said, you're going to get here, you're going to wait in the lobby for about 20 minutes, and then you're going to come in and take the study. Mm -hmm. They had a person waiting in the lobby who was a plant, and the person waiting in the lobby, every five minutes, the clock would hit five minutes and it would make a ding. And every time it did, they would stand up and do like the wave like they'd stand up and throw their hands over their head and then sit back down and then as the as the participants filed in they all copied it mm-hmm. i remember this study you know that like they they wouldn't do it like the first two or three times but then they'd feel awkward being the person not doing it and so then they did it and then there were two people doing it and then they added then they let the next study participant come in and then they did and you know you had the entire line of completely non prime study participants doing this weird stand up and put your hands over your head and then drop back down motion once they were all in line. And so when a leadership gets up and says, please, we need your help, people who are not leadership think that's not about me. I don't have the energy to be leadership. I don't have the energy to be 24 seven. I don't have the energy to run this place. But if another community member says I'm a community member, just like you, I'm just trying to put together one event. The only thing I need your help for you, the only commitment I need from you is the two hours it'll take to make one event. Who wants to help? It feels more real than even if the leadership says like we have a position that only takes two hours please do it yeah Mm -hmm. and of course you know also this plays into the first follower phenomena which is you know this ted talks on this or whatever but it's like what makes people follow someone isn't the person it's basically the hype people Mm. because everybody tells you like you should listen to me i have good ideas Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) everybody who's got a podcast in the whole world says i have good ideas i know what i'm doing i'm i'm coherent of course they say that but then when you see other people going no it's true those are actually good ideas like that's what people start following that person and it's the same scenario so you know the leadership can get up and scream till it's death like we know you love your community we know you want to help please god help us and they'll get like three four five people to help for a short time for a small amount or one or two people who really actually step up and like become crazy full-time people dedicated to the cause Mm -hmm. but if community members say help me be a community member it's just much easier for you to get other community members to get involved because yeah you look like them, mm-hmm. you process like them, you read like them, you're their person doing the wave. Mm, okay, yeah. You know, if the secretary in the office is doing the wave, none of the waiting people do the wave. Right. But if the waiting people are doing the wave, everybody in the waiting area does the wave. Right. But I'm sure that if you brought in more secretaries, they'd do the wave. David is our hype guy. <laughs> David? One of our hype guys, yeah, yeah. David's our hype yeah, guy. Yeah, David's our hype guy. <laughs> He goes around telling people how awesome we are and how you should listen he to us. He's definitely and one of our hype guys. He exists in communities. And- <laughs> oh, I think I know David. Yeah. Yeah. Shout out to David for being a great hype guy. <laughs> So awkward's an interesting construct as well, and it's definitely something that I've been struggling with while having young children, this idea of embarrassed, this idea of awkward, and the way that these constructs interact with our ability to behave, well, pro-socially, basically, but also in a way that's just good for us, which is weird, because, you know, you'll see a young child and they will they will make a mistake, or even they won't make a mistake. That's the weirdest thing to me is that, like, my son will say, do we have ice cream? And I'll say, oh, well, no, we don't have ice cream, but we have gummies. And I'll go, oh, I meant, I meant, I meant we have gummies <laughs> and i'm like why why did you mean that why did you not mean do you have the thing that i want that we were out of like what's the value like did you feel wrong because i couldn't you know and it's it's fascinating because he clearly is 
against feeling like like he failed, like he asked the thing that couldn't be given, and so he failed at something, and that makes him feel embarrassed about it, and he doesn't want to do that. Or he has all these amazing growth experiences where he makes an honest mistake, or someone just gets hurt for a reason that for him was not foreseeable, that we understand was not foreseeable, that we agree with, you know, say like, oh, hey, that wasn't foreseeable, but let's talk about how we can avoid that in the future so that everybody can, can be healthier moving forward. And he just shuts down and can't talk about it and hides. And, you know, I mean, obviously, that's the thing we're working on. And he's young, but it's interesting to see that that is a, I mean, obviously, a very deeply rooted human structure, because otherwise, why are you seeing that in children who have never even really been shamed for getting things wrong, you know? And obviously, I've talked about this before, you know, the we had the whole episode on shame and why I think shame is problematic. But I think awkwardness is just another type of shame in that sense, where you feel ashamed of not being cool enough, you feel ashamed of not having the right thing to say, you feel ashamed of not being interesting enough, you feel ashamed of your social acumen from your perspective, and then that becomes a self-feeding delusion where you think, well, why should I even talk to these people? I'm so lame. Mm -hmm. And then you try to talk to them and you think that you're lame and your body language says I'm lame. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you stop and you just go, what am I doing? What am I doing? And then you start saying things because somehow saying that you're failing is better than just failing without saying it. So you start trying to to talk to someone and go, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm bad at talking to people. I don't know why I'm trying to talk to you. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. And I'm done. Why don't you just talk? Then it becomes true. Now you are awkward. Right. (laughs) Because (laughs) you have become the thing that you were afraid that you were. And it's like, you know, what does awkward even mean? Awkward is a is is such a fascinating concept. It is a perception of how other people see you that you can never know. Yep, that's a good point. You are imagining the way that the other the other sees you. So you are becoming. So we, you know, we use the language of the other in existentialism for when we see other people as a mirror and it affects how our behavior works. But you're becoming the mirror of the other without even letting them tell you what they're seeing. It's not like they people at the party walk up to you and go, "Hey, you're being awkward," <laughs> and then you get awkward about it. That would be appropriate, right? That would be like, oh. Well, that's sad. I didn't realize I was so awkward that <laughs> it was clearly awkward to you. You are telling it to them. Because everybody feels awkward. Yeah. Everybody's, everybody, you ask anybody and they're like, oh, I'm so awkward. I, I'm so awkward at this. I'm awkward at people. I'm awkward at dating. It's just a, a reflection of what you think people think you are. Hmm. But not only that, it just is awkward. Right. Talking to a human that you have nothing in common with is awkward. The whole act. The whole act. Yes. If you think about just the evolutionary environment for a minute, we would have been in a troop our whole life. Who would you get to know that you'd never know? Right. That's true. I didn't think about that. How often would you be talking to a complete and absolute stranger outside of like a really high tension meeting where like two whole troops run into each other and are like, what the hell? Are we going to fight? What's going on? Are they a danger to us? And then, I don't know, sharing beads. (laughs) It's not a day-to-day activity that you would need to do. You wouldn't have to see if those people had shared interests. It's just a really unnatural thing for humans to be able to do without a ton of specific practice at it or a context that makes sense out of it. So I think there's a shame in feeling like you're extra socially awkward. And maybe there are people who are really good at not being socially awkward. But if there are, it's just because they practice at it. It's like doing pull-ups. Like pull-ups are not a thing that you just do by default. But if you do pull-ups every day... You look pretty cool doing pull-ups, I'm sure, but you went through an equal amount of time, probably more time than me, looking bad at pull-ups because I don't do pull-ups. So I don't have any time looking bad at (laughs) pull-ups. But like if I had to do a pull-up tomorrow, I would look terrible at pull-ups. 
themselves. You would be awkward. Right, exactly. I would be awkward at it. So when you do see someone who looks like they're amazing at these social spaces, it isn't because they haven't logged 10,000 hours of being awkward. It's because they did log 10,000 hours of being awkward. And it's a very specific skill that they've collected. But it's just, it's awkward for people. And honestly, I do not know anyone that doesn't think mixers with strangers is awkward. Right. Interesting. I have never met that human being. If you meet that human being, you let me know. So then why do we keep arranging it? Is it just because it's easy? Because we want to know new people. No, no, no. And like, why is that the activity that we go to? Because it's the easiest. It's the easiest. It's the easy. I mean, coming from from an organizer, mm-hmm. it is one of the easiest to plan. Okay. It doesn't require as much energy for me, but will, oddly enough, attract the most people. Really? You know, we were talking about the little, the niche groups and stuff. Mm. Everybody wants to go get a drink and just stand in a room for some reason. (laughs) Or like, we have like a game night type thing, or we had before COVID, where we go to like a- (laughs) I like how all of Mandy and Maya's like discussions are like, we have this great book club. Oh yeah, no, we had this great book club. We Uh, had this game night. Oh no, we had this game night. Yeah, I mean, and and we will get back to that. But you know, where where we we would rent out the top part of a bar and you know set up board games and stuff for people to play, and we would drink and play board games up there. It is it is the easiest for an organizer to do, and you're going to get the most attendees to it because, like I said, everybody for some reason wants to have a drink and stand in a room with other people. Well, I, I think it's so that it's accessible. You think it's awkward being socially awkward, but it's even more awkward if there's something that you're supposed to do and you actually don't know how. Hmm. So people that don't play board games are really scared to go to a board game mixer because they don't even know enough to know that there are board games that they can play that are accessible. Right. And you can say, like, there are board games that are accessible to you, but I don't know if they believe you. Or they've just had bad experiences with board games, so they might believe you that it's accessible, but think it will be miserable. Yeah. The thing is, everybody knows how to get a drink and talk to people. They don't know how to do it well. Yeah. It is awkward, but they do know how to do it. The process. And then the second thing is, most of what people really want from polyamorous events, from non-monogamous events, is still to meet other people. No matter how many notes your group has saying we're not a dating service, no matter how many you have saying we're not here to make connections or to have sex you're still there checking people out (laughs) yeah Yeah, you're still checking people out and the thing is i'm not even necessarily against that happening because there's only five percent of the population a lot of them are in community how else are you going to meet them yeah other than going to these community events as long as you follow the rest of the rules so that nobody's feeling hurt or scared or whatever that's fine but the thing is if you're lonely on a friday night and you think you can go to a meeting where you're going to see a lot of people who are at least in your dating sphere and the activity is not off-putting even if the activity is not exciting it's sort of exciting whereas if you see the activity and the activity is scary you're not going i mean i have seen very specifically in the community that i saw develop dynamic excited unbelievably invested leadership members put together a series of events that hit different things people felt good about and then got them invited to the next thing they didn't necessarily feel good about to build this interconnected web of young excited people who did all of the same things because that was their group and was able to do fun and exciting stuff even though it wasn't in everybody's niche but that is that is 
high effort. That is the most leaned in, the most invest- invested, the most effort you need. Honestly, that requires a charismatic leader of that subgroup who probably, uh, talk about again, followers and leaders who needs to be of the specific subgroup you're trying to court, which as a leader, you're often not in any of your own subgroups. So like as a leader, you're like, oh, I want to make exciting youth events. Right. Cool. I'm 40. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess I can put together a course of five youth events and say, our new exciting youth track event for kayaking and boating (laughs) like maybe i can't even do those things like i'm broken and i hurt like i'm a theoretical leader i don't know i've never tried doing those things you know the point being that even if you did do all of that it probably still wouldn't be very successful because people would still see who was posting it and go what why would i go to this old person's kayak yeah that's fair why would i go to this old person's mixer and if i go to this old person's mixer am i just gonna get hit on by old people the whole time or (laughs) so whatever the group that you're trying to galvanize and motivate is it's really hard to do that as leadership and leadership often has honestly once you get to a certain level of leadership other things that are unbelievably taxing like responsibilities to signal boost harms processes responsibilities to run harms processes response and if you're not doing that and there has to be something in your organization to resolve harassment complaints or resolve harms whatever you call it there's got to be i mean i'm not saying that you have to have harm processes like the alternative justice harms processes here i'm using it writ large harms happen and you have to have a process to deal with it and that is a lot of work. It's a lot of effort. It's unbelievably like it's a political hot potato. It's super draining. And not only do you have to have it, but you have to be ahead of it. You have to have enough energy and people and manpower to handle the potential flow of harms. You have to be like, okay, if three harms happened this week, hmm. do we have the manpower to, yeah. to handle that without burning out? Or you risk your community burning out. And then people are like, where's our monthly get together? And you're like, fucking coffee house. <laughs> and that is how you get coffee house mixers. All right. Yeah. Dang. That makes sense. So get involved, sir. Yeah, that's what that's what I, uh, I'm, I'm feeling. <laughs> like, all right. Yeah. Well, I'll say this. As a person who lifelong did not like joining things and who has a very strong anti-joining streak, I have found an unbelievable amount of joy in participating in communities and connection okay. in, in the building of communities. And I never found that, uh, I guess a better term would be visiting communities. So as a child, I was put into communities I didn't want to be in and told, they'll be your friends, you'll really enjoy it. But obviously, you want to be in a non-monogamous community if you're non-monogamous, if you're going to, I mean, if you're going to the events. If you're going to the events, you're already opting in. Don't just go and sit and judge and go, this isn't as good as it could be. Make it as good as it could be. And maybe you'll find that that was as good as it could be. But maybe even if that is as good as it could be, if you actually had a hand in making it and worked with those people making it, it would still be a lot more fun than coming in off the sidelines and just going I don't know anybody yeah Mm -hmm. because at least you'll know the other organizers minimal you'll have two or three people to talk to that you talked to to build the event you'll be like "Ooh, this is going poorly but we'll be doing it with a friend and your friend will laugh back at you and go yeah it is maybe we should do something different next time yeah and still you've made a friend which was the whole goal in the first place touche that is that is a good solid point You have still succeeded, even though you're still awkward at the end. Win. We're all awkward. All right. Yeah, no, I think everybody's awkward. That's true.
I think that's good. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's good. I think that covered my question and we went through how community building is important and put it in with the COVID and I think that was a cool tangent that actually worked out. Yeah, the social responsibility and the, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that that's where it was. All right, should we close then? Yeah, I say we close. Go to sleep? Yeah. Thanks everyone for listening. Who knows what our next topic is going to be or when you will hear it. (laughs) Oh God. But we'll try. We'll try. We'll give you that. We'll try. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. All right. Good night. Bye. All right. Later. Bye.